Hello, I'm Kenza, and this is the Finding Space podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Finding Space podcast. This week, I interview the kings of gravel, Ted and Laura King. You'd struggle to find two people who are more involved in the world of cycling, from racing to ambassadors to entrepreneurship. Ted and Laura cover everything. In this interview, they talk about what the bike means to them. Ted opens up about a difficult part of his world tour career, and they give great insight into their business endeavors. Enjoy. I was a competitive young child and still am today. Uh, so I started, I, I just embraced all things athletic as I, when I was young. And so I started riding as early as I can remember in my neighborhood. Um, I love the sense of freedom that the bicycle brings and being able to even just ride away from the house and come back when the streetlights came on. It was definitely something that brought independence at that time. And what's funny now is that that's evolved. And now what I really appreciate about the bicycle is that it is a tool for relationship building, especially if that's what I, that's the way I enjoy using it as a tool to build relationships. I, you, with cycling, I think you come to meet a lot of people that you may have never come in contact with. You may not feel like, um, you have a lot in common with them or that maybe they're in a different age bracket than you, but there's something about the bicycle that brings everyone together. And is that common thread? And you end up with a lot of really diverse, um, awesome relationships. It's one of the few sports that's sort of become part of a cultural sort of growing up, like learning to ride a bike. It's just one of those things everyone or a lot of people do at one point in their life. So I'm reading this nice book called It's All About the Bike by Robert Penn, who I believe is British. And he, the chapter that I read this morning, talks about that exact thing where we talk about the expression, it's like riding a bike, which we take for granted because sure you learn how to ride a bike and you, you take that skill with you for the rest of your life. But he points out that, uh, neuromuscular learning in the human body, it's this thing that you do learn and you take basically take it with you for the rest of your life. But why don't we use the expression? It's like knitting or it's like rowing a boat or it's like walking. You'll just always remember there, there is something very special that's universal, at least in the English language. It's just like riding a bike. Was there a point when cycling, transition to this is such a fun thing to do to either I'm quite good at this or I want to start taking this seriously yeah I mean when I think of there's sort of two periods of my life where where cycling is is part of that early upbringing it is when I learned how to ride a bike and it's getting around and seeing friends and, and so on and so forth but then I basically took 10 years off for all intents and purposes and sure I went to college and I would ride a bike around campus but that second coming of the bike is when I got into it again in college. Um, and I, uh, I was at a point in life where I, I went from being a very athletic high schooler to college and you have to find new, new pursuits. And, um, I went and watched my brother win a collegiate national championship. And I realized at that point that I could probably be the recipient of some hand-me-downs and we shared some, some, athletic genes and therefore maybe this cycling thing would be an interesting way to to 
remain athletic in my collegiate years. So, I mean, I took to it quickly. Um, having an older brother to chase around and, and being the recipient of those hand-me-downs allowed me to get into it pretty quickly and basically took off from there. Were you still looking at it that same way as even though you were starting to think about competing, was it still, this is just fun? There was no... Ooh, good question. Um, initially, it was absolutely fun. It was it was an outlet. I liked to move. I liked to sweat. I liked to, to you know, that's what's great about endurance sports in general is you just sort of, you, you earn your keep. Um, so taking to it in a competitive manner was as a result of chasing my brother and you know you put two people on a bike and they're going to be racing each other around and and uh i don't know i guess basically the point is very quickly competition became part of it and and i took to the competition and it's led me this far so don't mess with a good thing and was that similar for you did you have a stage where you started to compete or has it always been just a outlet for you to push yourself i think any passion that i've found in life i've pursued with all my might so I've just like thrown myself in and fully dedicated myself to it and first that was music I played in youth sim- I played the flute and youth symphonies and thought that was going to be my career um, at the same time as I was pursuing music I happened to in high school join the swim team which was really my foray into finding a passion and love for endurance athletics and I think at that point Um, I really felt a draw towards what endurance athletics could bring over music. I really felt like I better, um, I felt like I had found my people, whereas I didn't find that in music. And um, so from competitive swimming, that led me to just all things endurance sport related. So led me to triathlon, which I did for 12 years. And of course that involved the bike. Um, but then over time I, I discovered mountain biking, which I was really drawn to after 12 years in triathlon with a lot of very, oh, it's a very type a crowd. Um, it took away a little bit of the fun of the sport for me, uh, in that it became a little bit like a job and, um, found myself being more stressed about uh, about training or competition than I and and some of the joy had kind of left the sport for me so through that found mountain biking and discovered a crowd that had just as much fun and worked just as hard but seemed a little more laid back and I was really drawn to that um and I guess the great thing about I, I mean I love all things cycling but I love the element of mountain biking involves so much play as well as a balance of hard work. Um, and I've just been really drawn to the, a good balance of those two. I find it quite interesting what you're saying though, about how you got drawn to sort of endurance sports away from that musical world. Cause even though this is my obviously personal experience, that music is very creative and fun to be involved in and it's got a great culture to be around. But I found it quite isolating and it's incredibly competitive in that sort of orchestral environment. You sort of mentioned that social side of it. Do you think that was something that drew you away? Yeah, Did you find it isolating? I did very much so, especially as I got more serious in my, you know, I 
I had weekly private lessons with my flute instructor and she said, okay, if, if, if you truly want to go to a school like Juilliard or really take this, really try and make this a career, you know, you have to be practicing every day, a minimum of four hours a day and sitting in a room for me for four hours a day, being very isolated. It just, it wasn't my, I, I, it wasn't what I was truly passionate about. Um, yeah. And though swimming would also be seen as a somewhat isolating sport, it was still so much more social than music. And from that, I think I just, the relationships I was creating there and the, I mean, there are so many more elements of endurance sport that also drew me in. I mean, I'm, yes, I'm very competitive. Um, but I love pushing myself for long periods of time. And, um, and I, think it also helps when you find that you're maybe naturally inclined or good at it as well um so I think it was a combination of of factors that yeah it led me to feel like it was just something that I was that was a much better fit for my personality did you find there were times where that thing that you loved as a child going out, jumping, skidding around on a bike was suddenly like, what is this world? I don't understand it. Or was it always just a journey of enjoyment and pushing yourself and growing? It's been a bit of both. Um, so my my competitive career started later on in life as compared to many of my European colleagues who, who were racing a bike from the time they were eight years old. Um, I didn't start competing until I was about 18. Um, you know, therefore do everything a bit later, turn pro at a much later age, uh, make the jump to Europe at a later age. So throughout my career, I, I had, I think, a bit of perspective as a result of more maturity, um, more life experience. Um, and as a result, things that came my way, I, I, I think I made a conscious effort to really appreciate them for what they were. So, you know, my first pro contract, that was really cool. My first European trip, my first European contract from living overseas and having, um, you know, Tor Hushov as my, as my roommate for my first training camp, these things that a younger me wouldn't have appreciated, um, ended up not getting lost on me. So I, I mean, fast forward throughout my entire career. That's one reason that I retired at the age I did which was relatively early by pro cycling standards. I, I retired at 32 after 10 years professional and um, it was to still maintain that love. I could see that there were there were aspects of riding a bike that were sort of losing their luster and I didn't want that. I didn't want to hang up my, my wheels after, you know, call it a 15-year career, 20-year career and really not have the desire to go for a bike ride. So the first day that I didn't have to ride a bike, post-cycling, I went for a bike ride. Um, and, you know, conversely to that, there's certainly days that, that bike riding is going to be a job. Um, if it's raining and it's you have a four-hour day with intervals and it's just absolutely miserable outside. A little bit of sleet, slick roads. Yeah, you got you to gotta push through. Um, and there were some hard, really hard days when I raced with the, the liquid gas guys. You know, there's such a cultural shift. Um, being an American, you're almost in this island racing among the, the ocean of Italians. So similar to what you were saying five minutes ago about 
what can get lost when you're in the the myriad of of professional sports of of cycling it's almost like at amid liquid gas we were always staring at the at the trees never looking at the forest it's like yeah you need to be lean so therefore you should starve yourself but what's lost there i mean pro cyclists generally have an eating disorder um i mean i would guess vast majority 85 plus percent at some point in their career are going to have one and resolving the issue is not starving yourself before a bike race you know that's the antithesis of what you need to be doing you need to be looking at a bigger picture and not having somebody bark an order that says you need to do this you shouldn't have a fat caliper right before a bike race because yeah you know certainly there's an advantage to being lean and going up hills but was there an environment where people did say how are you doing you know are you are you feeling okay like are you up for this i think there's very little of that how are you feeling are you up for this because professional racing is such a routine you race so many times per year you're racing 80 plus days a year that it's just understood you're gonna have good days you're gonna have bad days but you're gonna go to work and do and be part of a peloton um you certainly don't have an appreciation of the landscape around you um i mean maybe you're racing through the belgian countryside and it's not quite as scenic as the you know italian dolomites or something but that's understood and and afterwards that's sort of the joke on the bus is that you're 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 surrounded by such spectacular scenery but we couldn't take it in because bike racing is so cutthroat they have to stare at the wheel in front of you for your own safety well i was going to ask i the research i did up on your career and i read up about the controversial stage four that you were disqualified from and i didn't know about this at all um but i read about it and it seemed to say that you had a shoulder injury and then you were seven seconds or so after the time cut and you were disqualified from the Tour de France on stage four. In that instance, how did you even cope with dealing with something like that? Was that something that hit you hard? Were you angry? Were you sort of distraught by that? Or, and then the process afterwards, how did you pick yourself up from it? So the nuts and bolts of it are on stage one at the 2013 Tour de France, uh, working for Peter Sagan. It's a sprint stage. We're lining up the team to get ready for, for a final sprint, which hopefully puts them in the yellow Jersey. And about 10 K out when the, when the, you know, fuss is really starting to, to pick up in the Peloton. Uh, there was a crash. I was part of it and ended up going down really really hard separated my, separated my shoulder chipped my scapula road rash on a ton of my body um it was ugly but any other bike race you go home in this being the tour de france which is the culmination of my career i soldiered on um you have to finish every stage to get to the next so finish that stage finish the next stage finish the next stage so then comes the stage four team time trial um and I specifically remember the first three stages were in uh, Sardinia, sorry, Corsica. And then we flew to, to continental Europe and we landed in Nice and then we have the team time trial. And I remember taking off on that plane and looking down at Corsica being like, well, thank God that's over. Like now we have nothing but, but sunny skies for the rest of the tour. Little do I know that the next day I'm gonna be kindly asked to never race the rest of that particular tour. So yeah, the way the injury worked, I couldn't pull up on the handlebars. So, you know, you're, if you're sprinting, yeah, you, you're going to put a lot of pressure down with your legs, but you're also pulling up with the, the handlebars. And 
the beginning of that team time trial uh, was the only technical part of the course, and you're basically sprinting for two minutes, and then you go out on the countryside of Nice, out and back, all well and good. Immediately dropped from the from our group, uh, from my team, and therefore I have to ride a solo time trial. Quite proud of the time. I did a nice solo time trial at 28 miles an hour for, for 35K on a road bike because given the nature of the injury, I couldn't ride a time trial bike. Anyway, that evening opens up this this total... Uh, I don't know. It's sort of mayhem. Um, the The tour to France is nothing but stories and interesting stories and dramas. And I think there hadn't been a big drama at that point. So it's almost like, what can the media make of it? And according to my cycling computer, I finished within time cut. According to the, the official time, I was outside of time cut. Okay, I'll take that for what it's worth. Um, but there's so many extenuating circumstances in pro bike racing where rules are bent and there's unwritten rules. And I guarantee if my passport were French, it would have been perfectly fine to be reinstated the next day coincidentally i was fine until the very last team went which was michelin scott which set the tour de france team time trial record for the fastest ever team time trial of all time so hats off to them but it was a bummer that that resulted in me being last to leave so that's a very long-winded intro um it was it was heartbreaking um it is the culmination of my entire career. It's so early in the race, stage four, and, and literally that day, given the circumstances of, of starting the race in one part of Europe and then flying to continental Europe, um, my parents arrived to the first time they'd ever watched me race in Europe uh, to Nice. My dad had a stroke at that point uh, 10 years prior, so traveling is really hard. And they make it over, and I'm, I'm they're excited to watch me for the next week the day that I'm asked to leave and it's just it's so heartbreaking in so many ways it's heartbreaking for me personally it's heartbreaking from the perspective of you know trying to live up to their expectations and hopes and and you know a fun week ahead and what sort of brought it back to reality was all the drama that night then the next day I wake up and that's the day that I can't start the tour and I pick up a international herald tribune and you know the entire front page is just bad news and strife and war and starvation and just so many bad things that are happening in the world. And there I am sobbing away that I can't race my bike. I can't ride the tour de France. Like in the grand scheme of things, it ain't that bad. So, but I always think quite often the way people cope with something is often that reaction to, well, there's lots of worse things going on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very unfair situation to be put in that you have to make that call that I shouldn't be upset because there's worse. But it sounds like there may have been, but was there any sort of structure around to make sure you're okay or double check on you? And actually oh. in terms of your mental health, not your shoulder. Heck no. No, I still have scars on my body because my... A team doctor who wanted nothing more than for me to go home because it's one less person to look after uh, was pouring iodine in my side to keep it all disinfected. So I have like a little iodine scar on my side. Um, You know, you get back from the the hospital that night and the team's all well fed and massaged and ready for bed and hanging out. And they're like, are you okay? And I guess that was the closest it got to, are you okay? Um, 
there's such a bummer when you're injured at the in any bike race. There's a bummer when somebody doesn't make time cut. There's a bummer when somebody's kicked out for whatever reason, just similar to this. But it's it's so part of the routine that it's almost sort of glossed over. Um, because they the riders know that that individual who's out doesn't want to be there. The individual feels bad because they're sort of this hanger on for that moment as they're slowly escaping. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, the world does go around. If I can't continue bike racing for a day, yeah, that sucks. And there were people I wanted to swear at, and it was amazing the outpouring of support that that the entire cycling world seemed to, to come my way. Barking at top bosses. I mean, barking at Pat McQuaid and, and the ASO and saying, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. Let Ted back in. Let Ted ride. Um and I, I did have confidence that my, I was coming good and I started to f- feel better. The next day was, uh, I think the next day was going to be a rest day. There were so many positive things that were going to be in my favor. But what can you do? So much of life is unfair that, and what can you do? Yeah, I guess, I guess I would only say what can you do is don't neglect the rider in sure. the first instance but obviously knowing you two from afar and seeing your sort of journey into gravel cycling which is from my standpoint i guess seemingly the i don't know if it is factually but seems to be the fastest growing area of cycling um and i'm sure it is in terms of bike sales as well but that is an area where the culture of cycling does seem to be the top it's like the enjoyment factor comes first and then it trickles down um do you find that your place in the cycling world for both of you now is a much more enjoyable one or is it just a completely different because you're still racing both of you race um your attitudes to it has that changed from when you turn up on a, a race day? I'd like to think that it's helping me, that gravel cycling has helped me and is still helping me to maybe not take sport as seriously. And I mean that like, I still go to a start line wanting to do my very best, but I think it helps, um, it's helped me to put things more into perspective. And to real, I, I like the fact that you can also line up with other goals in mind. I mean, in the last six weeks, well, for example, right now I'm pregnant. My goals have to change. Surprise. Riding. <laughs> um, and so the last race I lined up for, the Steamboat Gravel 140 miles, I rode with a friend who it was her first ride riding over 100 miles and um, kept her company and helped pace her and just... Um, decided to have have fun out there and the fact that you can line up for a race and decide you know the very following weekend I actually did line up for a race and and went out and gave it my all but the fact that I have that choice and I can enjoy the day whether I'm lining up to get on the podium or be be there with a friend um is a really unique aspect of what gravel cycling is all about 
immediately when I segued from world tour racing to these, this ambassador role, this, this ambiguous nebulous ambassador role, um, the very next year where I'm working with sponsors to do events and lead camps and, and basically do things to help stoke the general interest of cycling. It couldn't have happened at a better time that that's when gravel really started booming and sort of on a whim, I did dirty Kansas in 2016. Um, I did win the race and I was sort of taken aback with how friendly and welcoming and excited the community was there. And, and certainly no better word for what that entity is than community because it was so just so heartfelt. Um, and that was something that we really wanted to, to emphasize at our event rooted, rooted Vermont is make it, make it something that every person's going to go home uh, remembering what was exciting about it and why it was welcoming and why it was uh, just this really cool communal event. And so we celebrate the with mullet protocol. I mean, we, we, that's been a really popular phrase. It's like, yes, there's going to be a portion of people at the front of the race who are hard charging and ready for the win. And there are plenty of people who are there for the finish line or for the great food or for the beer or cider or whatever it is. And they're just, they're part of that community. So is that why you chose to have a shorter distance or was that logistical? No, it was, I think the shorter distance allowed, allow people to, who are relatively new to cycling to dip their toe into it. I mean, certainly the, the harder, longer route, 8,200 miles and I'm sorry, 82 miles and 8,500 feet of climbing. 8,200 would be impressive. 8,200 miles is a (laughs) monumental undertaking. Um, and that thought, I think Laura in particular has done a great job drawing, drumming up support in this community among people who are new to cycling. And we knew we could name names of people who, who wouldn't be able to, or who wouldn't sign up in the first place, knowing that there was only an 82 mile option. So this was a great entry point. Um, and, and certainly a lot of them are going to be gunning for that 82 mile or next year. As you say, you're both fast paced. You have, I don't know, 50 businesses that you seemingly are running um, and working on whilst working for brands and then sometimes winning races. Um, How do you take on, I mean, Rooted Vermont and Untapped seem to be the two that are the big pinnacle things that you're working on. with Root of Vermont, was that a really hard thing to do, to take on? Or were you just like, we need to do this. It ran smoothly. There were no pressures. Was that whole process difficult? Was it enjoyable? Creating an event was something that we wanted to do for a long time. We, we recognize that our connections are as strong as anybody in the sport. Um, the fact that we are a couple, I think, is, is unique and dynamic and offers a really interesting perspective for a lot of people. Um, I think the impetus was moving to Vermont. There are certainly countless uh, events in California, and I, I, we quickly could have been just another number there, but there's something very special and unique about Vermont that we wanted to show off. And that said, my schedule is so ridiculously full um, that I said, yes, Laura, this is something we should do, and my bandwidth is going to be very small. So it largely landed in Laura's lap. Well, there was, I think, a lot of life events fell into place fortuitously 
And there was a lot of introspection before we made the decision. Yes, we're going to move forward with this because like I've mentioned before, I don't intend to do anything uh, halfway and neither does Ted. And I think, you know, I had just happened to leave my former job. And so I was, I had a, I had some time to really think about what was next and what I enjoy and what my skill set is and what drives me. And I, deep down, I mean, we, we both, Ted and I love the podcast, how I built this. It's, you know, entrepreneurial stories and, um, also living in Vermont, it's very much an entrepreneurial state. There are not a lot of, you know, it's, I mean, it's harder to, to figure out what you're going to do occupation wise here. They call it the gig economy actually, because of that, a lot of people have a lot of gigs. Um, so with all those factors, um, yeah, we, when we, I think also it was helpful to get, um, some comments from whether it was on social media or friends kind of putting, planting the seed, asking us, you know, you live in this state now with more dirt roads than paved. Are you going to put on a gravel event? Are you going to put on a gravel camp? So that planted the seed. And, you know, after a lot of thought, I, we, we decided that this is something we wanted to do and that I had the capacity to start, um, or primarily kind of drive it forward. Um, and then things just kind of continue to fall into place. Honestly, the the website, the, the media, the social media, everything you did was really well thought out. You know, you used local things at the end of the ride and beers and products and things like that. It really seemed to just be, you, you could almost see that you'd been to a lot of events and you'd taken things from each event and you'd put it together in a really nice, perfect way. Whereas you say there aren't loads of gravel, big gravel rides going on. Was that something that you were just conscious of from the start or did it naturally happen that way? Very, I, that was something we were very conscious of, but it also happened pretty organically, I think, because it, it all was very genuine. I mean, when we thought about, when we thought about just wanting to bring our friends to go on a great ride in Vermont, we thought about the elements that we'd want to showcase to them. I mean, the things that we think are so special about Vermont are, you know, what, like, first and foremost, the amazing roads it has to offer and, um, the views and the kind of just bucolic nature of the state. Um, but we also love, you know, Vermont is known for its IPAs. It's known for its maple syrup. Um, it's, it's known for its community. And, um, those are all things that we felt we really, I mean, if we could just make, if we could orient our event around showcasing all the things that are awesome about, about Vermont, we really felt like that would be something unique, um, in the gravel cycling world. And that uh, there's, there's a, there's a special draw to this state, you know, people call it kind of, um, I think we heard it called the other day, a postcard, the postcard state. I mean, it's, a state I think that a lot of it's that, that has a lot of tourist interest to visit. Um, but then, you know, the whole, when we were really searching for a name for the event, um, it all came back to us feeling so rooted in this community so quickly. 
and that's that's where the name rooted came from you hit on it laura hit on it um there was no accident the way it was portrayed um the the website and the social media is all very both conscious and organic but we've we have seen so many other events we have participated and been part of so many events that we knew what succeeds what are really important touch points where you don't want something to be an afterthought but you want it to be at the forefront and so yeah i think we just we used our experience um being lucky to be so part of so many events to to really make this a knockout and is that going ahead the same as next year are you changing anything did after this year were there i don't know if there were like teething problems or things that you thought oh we should tweak that or we need to introduce this whatever company you're growing i think it's really important to get feedback and continually be looking for room for improvement so there are yeah there are of course many elements in which i think we can i mean I would say year one exceeded our expectations in every way. Um, I couldn't, there are so many anxieties I had about things that are out of your control um, that you just kind of have to cross your fingers and hope go smoothly. I mean, you have no control over the weather. You have no control over, uh, I mean, first year you're going in a little bit blind to, uh, do we have enough parking spots and you know, how, how everything is exactly going to play out. So in that regard, I breathe a very deep sigh of relief after year one went so well. Um, but yeah, we just collected a bunch of feedback and, you know, asked all of our participants, what did you like? What, did, what, what would you change? Um, and it's very, we got some very diverse feedback. So I think one thing that we'll keep in mind is you can't, you'll never be able to please everyone. Um, I think overall though, it was apparent from the feedback that it met or exceeded the majority of people's expectations and so now it's just little tweaks to kind of how can we kind of continue to build on that and make it a little better every year touching on general ebbs and flows of mental health if someone doesn't have a good day and they don't enjoy it that can be completely valid but it doesn't necessarily say that you did anything wrong someone was just might have a you know i've done a few bike rides where i've got to the end of it and thought why on earth would anyone ride a bike? This is the worst thing in the world. Why would anyone go up that road? So a lot of emotions can come out when you're cycling. So I'm sure at the end of the race that a few people had different ideas of it. I've, I, I'm, lear I'm quickly learning that this is, um, that building an event in the community is, is a project in which you need to develop some thick skin <laughs> um, because you just, you know, you know, as hard as you try, you probably will have a few people who, who, I don't know, didn't like the type of coffee that you offered for free or didn't like, you know, maybe they're, 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 they're your food offerings weren't their preference um, or music that your the style of music you offered wasn't their, their preference. So, um, I think as someone who is kind of like type A perfectionist, that's actually, that's the hardest part for me is I would like a hundred percent of the participants to be as happy as possible and feel like it was perfect in every way. Um, but I realize that that's not really very realistic. So just, um, 
trying to have a mindset of you can only do your best and um, you probably will not always please everyone. You just need to make sure to remember that not everybody loves bluegrass, which is totally fine, even though bluegrass is the greatest of all music for a post-cycling <laughs> event. And make sure we record this so that Laura can listen to these words that she's preaching because as soon as another review comes in, not another, as soon as a review comes in that, that is conflicting something she has said in the past to not get fired up. There are so many minor things that go into an event and you're also trying to make the overall thing just perfect for everyone. So you're dealing with all these stresses and you said one of the great things, one of the sort of selling points, but sort of positives to your event is that you built this as a couple. Did you consciously have to sort of stop, breathe, as we were saying, take yourself away from it and sort of debrief about it? How did you, how did you find like working together on these things? Well, we would be remiss if we did not mention that we have a third friend slash partner involved with Rooted. And she happens to be my very good friend. Her name is Kristen. Um, and she was kind of the missing piece to the puzzle that we didn't know was missing. Um, I think just because it's been really helpful for me to have her as a sounding board and have it not always be my husband. Um, I think Ted would probably agree. I just, yeah, it is challenging. We, to work with your spouse, we are around each other a lot more than a lot of other couples. I mean, we're on the road at events We're we spend a lot of time together. Um, and I think that anytime you're around someone, um, that much, there's sometimes going to be more opportunity for friction or I think also we're two really kind of strong-willed uh you know independent confident about our ideas type people (laughs) and I think that there's been a lot because of that we've been able to do a lot of awesome things together I think that's actually a really um positive in our relationship but it's also you know, it can be cause for, or it can be a, it can cause friction at times too. So it's been nice to have that, that third sounding board. But you obviously have both become running these events and you've got quite a large following through doing sort of racing and brand ambassador stuff. You're sharing quite a lot all the time. Do you find that overwhelming? We live in such a content hungry society that I think it is actually harder from the I'll talk from the perspective of untapped because we want to produce content every day we want you know a beautiful landscape of maple syrup or a runner in it or you know whatever it is that continual drum is is it tends to be more difficult Laura and I live such a busy life that we are going event to event that it's sort of easy to, to produce the content and Certainly there's this, you know, veil of positivity that, that is everything 
especially Instagram because it is so visually uh, uh, powered. And so people aren't going to take a picture of their latest fight or their latest argument or their latest fender bender. Um, so there's sort of this dichotomy within modern social media where we were talking about Strava a second ago and maybe that connection that happens on Strava or the connection that can happen on through a direct message on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or the objectivity of LinkedIn, I think can be very powerful. But then, you know, obviously the negative is the boastfulness and the, the, the pride or the sort of the rose colored glasses that is painted on everything else. Um, that just can lead to a obsessive society in which we live. I mean, I, I do try to take a conscious effort and certainly I'm guilty as much as anybody, but I try to take a conscious effort to put my phone down and not obsess about it and not find myself mindlessly scrolling for no reason. Um, even though contrast that directly with that is, that is part of my job is to produce content. Um, what is nice about virtually all of my partnerships is they don't mandate anything. They don't say, okay, you need to have one post per week. You need to, you need to produce this. It's, it's understood that the stuff I'm going to produce is going to be genuine. It's going to be heartfelt. It's going to be hopefully visually interesting or, or, or somehow educational in some way or the other. So it's an interesting treadmill upon which we're all running along as a society. And I'm curious to see what's next. You've both sort of touched on the fact that you like to constantly push and drive. Are you looking to just keep doing that, working on different things, helping other people with ideas, or are you sort of now like just set on these things and got plans for those? I, I think we've determined where our focuses should be now that we've created Rooted, now that we have, I mean, a, an impetus to moving to Vermont was also the growth of Untapped. So um, even moving here was indicative of becoming more um, involved and wanting to be a part of the day-to-day operations of Untapped. So investing our time and energy into both of those is definitely going to be a part of the five-year plan. There, I think we see consistency in the events and, and uh, relationships and partnerships that, that I think are the most fruitful for obvious reasons. It's like, yeah, if it's working, great. Let's keep allowing it to work. So yes, with the, the growth of the King family, I think we'll be a little bit more selective in the events that we go to next year. Um, but that said, I think we love the pace of our lives, uh, truth be told. So I think trying to maintain, like we find therapy in the, in the, in how rapid it is and how interesting and dynamic it is. And so I think that's something that we want to introduce to our family. And I mean, we have plenty of friends who tap us on the shoulder and say like, you know, that we, we want to be able to travel as much as you do. I mean, there's certain prohibitive things, be it a job or family that don't allow them to do that. So in a way it's aspirational and we're, we're privileged and blessed and lucky to be in this position. So that certainly doesn't answer the tangible part of your question. Yeah. Moving here, uh, untapped is a huge part of that. Uh, creating rooted was, has been a huge part of the past year. Um, at the end of the day, I don't want to compete 
um, to the degree that that competition has entered the the realm of gravel um, for the next you know ten years. Um, I don't want to be a what would I be then a forty six year old professional gravel racer, and that's I think we're seeing more of a full circle in, in gravel in general where it is more welcoming to the masses and how can we put more people on bikes? Um, the, the side of world tour racing that is very selfish is, is finding success requires that you, that you train like a monk and don't go to weddings and, and, and celebrations and see family and do all the fun things of life. And now I'm in a really cool position where I want to spread the love of the bike and, and introduce people to it and, and, you know, let them figure out what the bike is going to mean for them. So it's a, it's a wide open, it's a very great question with a wide open response. So ask me every day for the next 20 years and I'll tell you. Thank you for listening. If you would like to see the portraits from this week's episode, please go to findingspace.cc. For more interviews like this, please subscribe to the Finding Space podcast. But more importantly, if this story resonated with you, please share. The more we engage with the topic of mental health, the further we can go to break down the stigma.